Hello, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, with another episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. We actually got a double shot this time around, and a lot of times we do careers and tributes, and this was no different, but we figured if we're going to talk one, then we'll have to talk two, and of course, the men we are talking about is Mr. Wrestling, one and two, and joining me in this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories to talk, I don't know if it would be Mr. Wrestlings or Misters of Wrestling or whatever, but once again, my co-host from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe for ease, we just call him Tim and Johnny. That would make it <laughs> yeah. uh, But I uh, mean, I digress. This is interesting. Both both guys had runs in 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 Mid Atlantic when I was a kid, but both of them are probably more well known for their runs in Georgia. So I have a bit of a working knowledge as a young kid of both these guys and later in their careers when they were top guys in Georgia being the adjacent territory. We got some Georgia TV. And of course I had an aunt and an uncle who lived in Atlanta. I'd visit them and I I would get the Georgia TV at their house. So I have a pretty good knowledge of what was going on in Georgia most of the time. Right. We'll get down to it. I I think with the, with the exception of people like, El Santo, you could make the argument that, at least in the history, that Mr. Wrestling, and certainly Mr. Wrestling 2, might have been the most successful masked wrestlers in the States, at least. I mean, is it fair to say that? Yeah. I mean, there's it's definitely a time gone by. We don't have masked wrestlers much anymore. And when they do, it's it's we know who they are, like Kane or Bray Wyatt. Mysterio, Pentagon, you know. Right, right. And those guys, I don't even count them because they're luchadors and that's just part of the the business down there uh, i would put them yeah one and two are up there I, maybe don jardine spoiler that was obviously we've talked dick buyer before but dick buyer was a bigger star i think in japan than he was in the states and jody hamilton so was, too yeah 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 well, both jody hamilton and tom renesto the, the the mass assassins so there there were a handful of them it was they were either mass wrestlers were either top of the card guys because all the guys were talking we just i just listed they were all top guys or it was a prelim guy, a Dr. X or, or, or Mr. Unknown or something like that. It was just the way promoters would have a mask in their bag and throw it at a, at a guy and say, hey, throw this on, wear some different gear. I need somebody to wrestle this pushed guy in the opening match. I need to fill the card out. Or maybe it might be the same guy who's working another match, just one under a mask. Right. Uh, of course, there are also the, the famous angles that we talked about off mic where a, a top baby face would lose a loser, leave town, and then magically, within the next week or two on television, a guy with the exact body type of, of said baby face appearing with a mask on under a, a, a funny name. Uh, some of the more famous ones I can think of were Stagger Lee, which was Junkyard Dog in the Bill Watts Mid-South area, and we'll talk about that a little bit because it overlaps some with Mr. Wrestling 2's career. Midnight Rider in Florida and the Carolinas for Dusty, and, of course, Charlie Brown from out of town, which is Jimmy Valiant here in the Carolinas. So those are your three main types of masked wrestlers. And, and, and obviously, Mr. Wrestling 1 Mr. Wrestling 2, they were in that first group. The, they were top guys. Mr. Wrestling, his real name actually was George Wooden, but he went by Tim Woods when he started wrestling. He was born in 1934, and he had two degrees from two different universities. He was actually ag- agriculture engineering, which I guess is just a fancy way of saying farmer. I mean, I would say that. I mean, that most of the most of you of the ag schools around here. Uh, I think agribusiness is another one you hear now a lot. Yeah, farming. 
I mean, I think if the pandemic that we we're dealing with currently has taught us anything, farming is one a job that has that is greatly diminished in numbers <laughs> and completely and totally overlooked by most of the most of society of how important they are. They feed right. us for God's sakes. <laughs> and, and it's it's it, I think it's a line of work that is much more complicated than people understand. You don't have to be a neuroscientist or an astrophysicist to understand it, but there is a lot of science and management involved, especially in a bigger farm. So, yeah. He got that degree from Cornell University in New York, but he got his degree in mechanical engineering at Michigan State. And that is where he gained success as an, an amateur wrestler. That's where he got his amateur wrestling credentials from Michigan State. He actually finished second in the NCAA tournament twice, which essentially makes him a two-time All-American. And it, his college pin record was on par with the legendary Danny Hodge. I think I think Danny Hodge was like one of only like one or two guys that had a greater record than than he did. And Danny Hodge is obviously somebody we could do multiple shows on. But oh yeah. yeah. No, no shock. He was a he was a success, or he gained he gained notoriety by being successful at Michigan State. Those that are not familiar with the amateur wrestling world, and I, and I know it's a small group of people that are fans of that. Historically, the the what, what what's known as the Big Ten. I know some of our listeners are not familiar with collegiate sports. The Big Ten are the major universities in the Midwest. Those schools have dominated amateur wrestling for a long, long time. With the most successful program, the the Notre Dame. If you if you're a football fan, or, or I guess currently would be Alabama, or or if you're taking basketball, the Indiana, Kentucky, North Carolina Dukes of collegiate wrestling is Iowa, which is a Big Ten school. But Michigan State is in the Big Ten. Michigan, uh, Northwestern. You're a Chicago guy, so Northwestern. That's a those are the Big Ten schools. Ohio State. They just. I think the reason why is just climate based. It's living in that part of the world has very cold and harsh winters so anything you do sports wise is going to have to be inside and both wrestling and basketball are men's sports that are played in the wintertime and indiana is a historical powerhouse in basketball and the rest of this at michigan and michigan state are both really good in basketball too historically speaking and the other schools are wrestling schools. You, you can understand that living in the midwest i'm sure why wrestling would be popular in the wintertime Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we have hockey here a lot, so you know, which is natural sure. because you know it's it's cold half the year here. Yeah, once again, Big Ten, Big Ten's a powerhouse in hockey too. Uh, right. Minnesota, Minnesota is always one of the best collegiate programs in the country, and then strangely enough, so are the Boston colleges. Shockingly, again, it's cold in Massachusetts as well. So <laughs> go figure, right? I mean, I, I I say all the time, people don't like. Well, how come those southern based colleges seem to dominate? Collegiate sports, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, swimming, or weather, we can train year round here. You can't do that up where you live. I mean, it does. It gets obviously it gets cold here in the winter, but not so cold that. And I know this from personal experience. You can go out and train in the middle of the winter. You can go outside and and, and run, run and do your cardio and practice. It's the weather's not great to play baseball in February, but it can be done. You ain't playing baseball in the middle of February in Minnesota or Michigan. Just not happening. But I do want to clarify with Michigan that this is Michigan State, which is not 
where the Steiners went to. Uh, Steiners went no, to I, Michigan University of Michigan, right? No, no, the Steiners actually went to Michigan State. They just oh, okay. built themselves from Michigan because mm. Michigan's more well known. Okay, you know, it, it, it's it's just a story. It's I think it's more well known, but they actually did go to Michigan State. Uh, okay, who else went to Michigan State? Magic Johnson. So I didn't like they haven't produced good, good, good athletes to come out of Michigan State. Uh, I just think Michigan is for whatever. I, probably because of their their success on the on the football field. I think they're like the third or fourth winningest program in the history of college football. They're more well known. So the Steiners build themselves from Michigan, but they actually went to Michigan State because when you're talking Big Ten schools, I told you some of them are good at wrestling, some are good at basketball. There's a great example. Michigan State is good at basketball. And they've had teams like the Magic Johnson teams in recent years under coach Tom Izzo where they've been really good in basketball. But historically, Michigan State's the wrestling school in Michigan, and Michigan is the f- basketball school in Michigan. Does that okay. clarify things? Yeah, yeah, that, that that makes sense. Now, Wooden turned pro in 1962, which, as we talked about, he was born in 34. So he actually started late for, for a wrestler. That would have been well, his late 20s. Well, if he, if he went to college for two degrees, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot a lot of guys. I had a later start in the business. A lot of guys start right out of high school. Look at a look at like like a, a Dustin Rhodes. He's born into the business when he starts when he's eighteen years old. Or Ray Mysterio. You brought him up earlier. He was like what fourteen or fifteen when he started wrestling professionally. Terry Gordy, who we'll mention later, started at like fourteen or fifteen. But a guy who went to college, they're not going to start to their early to mid twenties because you're going to get those four. The Rock's like that. Think about it. He went to school for four years. Ron Simmons, any of the guys you can think of that have legitimate amateur backgrounds of any type are probably going to start a little later because they played co- collegiate sports. And then some of them even played pro ball. An Ernie Ladd, a Bill Watts, a Lex Luger. So that makes it makes sense to me that Tim would start later because he went to college and wrestled in college. The, the Briscoes, famous wrestlers, Diney Hodge, they didn't start wrestling until later. Why? They all wrestled in college. They went to college for four years. And when you got two degrees, you got a lot of education. So there is a lot of potential real job opportunities. So maybe he just wanted yeah. to make sure he had that experience before. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the old, the old, the old cliche of, Hey, kid, get an education. I told you how Wahoo would say, told me that as a kid, go to school. There are a lot of trainers in that era who wouldn't train a guy to, for the business until they had been to college backup plan. Absolutely. Yeah. And for a, for a guy like, like a Tim Woods, like a, a Gorilla Monsoon, like a, the Briscoes, like all these guys are talking about, Dick Byer, guys that had amateur backgrounds that had, a, and because their athletic prowess had been able to, to get a education, I'm not saying they weren't motivated to be star wrestlers, but they, I don't think they were as, as desperate, if that makes sense. Because if it didn't work out, well, and especially someone like Tim Woods, those are engineering degrees. I mean, engineers make good money now. They made really good money back then with college degrees. So he goes by the name Tim Woods when he starts wrestling, and he actually first wrestled for Capital Wrestling, which we talked about in one of our early shows. That was the company that would eventually morph into WWE. So that's where he broke in, and it makes sense because he was born in New York, and he actually wrestled on the same card, May 17th, 1963, where Bruno won the then WWF title from Buddy Rogers. And within a few years... He had success in New York, uh, down Florida, Texas, and he was working as a clean-cut babyface. And he even had title shots against Luthez for the NWA title at, at that time. Sure. Where he got the Mr. Wrestling name was from the Omaha Territory, and I I, I always mispronounce the names. Is it Joe Dusek, is it? Or? Dusek. Dusek? Okay. Joe Dusek. Yeah. 
Yeah, Joe Dusick was the promoter in the Omaha Territory, and he gave him the name of Mr. Wrestling and wanted him to wear a mask. Now, where this was considered risky is like we were talking about before. It's why uh, I brought up mask wrestlers before. Most mask wrestlers, at least in the States, tended to be heels. Really, the mm-hmm. only babyface one we, we mentioned was, was Rey Mysterio. And that was more because mm-hmm. of his Lucha background. But the Assassins and Spoiler and all that, they were all masked heels. Yep. So it was a gamble. He gave Woods a white mask and a white singlet because to signify him being a babyface. But the gimmick worked, and Mr. Wrestling was born. And he would go on to have the success that we talked about. And his greatest success in the, was really in the South. But he also worked for Leo Garibaldi who promoted months ahead of time to this mysterious man who was such an accomplished wrestler. The reason why he was masked is because nobody would be willing to face him if they knew who he was. Right. Uh, Leo Garibaldi, he'd be booked several territories. He had a great, very successful run as the booker for Paul Bosch in Houston. He booked for Roy Shire in San Francisco, several of the territories he was booker for. That particular gimmick to bring was repeated multiple times in multiple territories whenever Tim Woods would go to a new territory and he would cut promos. I, I have to wear this mask because I, I mean, it sounds weird that a baby face in this air would be saying it, but he was able to pull it off convincingly where he would basically say, I have to wear this mask because there, there are cowards out there who you are. You wouldn't get signed on a contract and get in the ring with me if you knew who I was. And the cons, the idea of Mr. Wrestling, I mean, you're such a good wrestler. You're such a pure wrestler that you just can call yourself Mr. Wrestling. It fit a guy with an amateur background like Tim. Not as good as Danny Hodge or the Briscoes or Kurt Angle later on, but still an extremely impressive amateur background. And we've gone at length before talking about how important kayfabe was in this this time period and presenting your guys as legitimate athletes with a legitimate amateur athletic background and how that gave them credibility from the jump that another other guys would have to earn through hard work in the ring that works and it worked very well with tim wood a a simple analogy to be made is the superhero you know how many superheroes have secret identities so right not everybody is steve rogers or tony stark where everybody knows who they are right right now we can't talk this early career of mr wrestling without bringing up what happened, and I think this was still in Garibaldi's territory with the, the, the shoot that happened with Arnold Sperling. Believe so. Believe that's yeah. right. I believe Garibaldi was booking at the time. But this was, of course, a time when kayfabe was in full force. Even then, there were people who would heckle the sport and the wrestlers calling them fake. And this incident happened in 1968 with a man named Arnold Sperling. Now, what exactly is true and what's false and what's uh sensationalized or whatever i don't know if we'll ever truly know because obviously this was not filmed for television very few pictures exist and even sperling's real identity is disputed at least from what i've been able to gather but it was one of those th- this guy was claiming to be tougher than wrestlers and they you know these fake wrestlers so they had a legit shoot fight that that the locker room attended and during that match woods was out wrestling sperling so sperling actually bit Woods's finger and actually bit his fingertip off. Yep. And that, of course, caused Woods to go nuts and the fight was broken up. And this is legit because I know I said there's very few pictures exist, but there is one of Tim Woods still with the mask on, still with his fingertip 
cut off. So gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he did get the fingertip attached, but he never regained full control of that finger. So unfortunately, it's just one of those injuries that just lasted for the rest of his life. Now, did you know anything about the, the background of that fighter? No, I, that's one of those that, that that's still shrouded in mystery. I will say this because it's shrouded in so much mystery and, and I'm, I'm, I'm such a cynic. It could have been a work. It could have been a, a, a mark that, that the promoter paid off. It could have been, I mean, it could have been anything. Eddie Graham was notorious. You can go look at old newspaper clippings at starting fights in the street with the top heel in the territory because because they wanted it to make the local newspapers. They wanted a, a leg, an air of legitimacy so people would come down to the matches to see it. That's how Harf K. Fabe was in that era. But I tend to believe, based on the injury, this probably really was a shoot fight. This wasn't something that was a work, a work shoot that somebody had set up to try to build the credibility of professional wrestling in the territory. Because, like you said, Tim lost use of that finger for the rest of his life. So it probably really happened. It it just it is what it is. Yeah. Funny what happens when you take a, a human being that's a grown man with about eight brain cells and you add alcohol to it. What they'll say? Yeah, right, right. Now, Woods I mean, even would... even if even even if you think pro wrestling is fake, who Tim Woods is? It's documented. This guy's a legit badass amateur wrestler. Why would you think you could beat him up? That's just <laughs> right, right. Anyway, I, I digress. Yeah. But Woods would go on to have great success uh, in the Southern Territories. He actually would wrestle sometimes as Woods and sometimes as Mr. Wrestling. It really depended on w- where he was. He got another NWA World Title match against the then heel champion Gene Kaniski. And this was a sellout because fans had been convinced that Mr. Wrestling was unbeatable. It's amazing what yep. happens when you have your top guy win all those matches. They, they, they get over. They get popular. I mean, yes, geez. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand this current fan mentality that it's so hypocritical. We hate 50-50 booking, but then they whine about a guy losing. How do guys get over? They've got to beat somebody. <laughs> right. <Yeah. sighs> it gives me a headache if I think about it too much, so I'm, not, I'm just not going to think about it. <laughs> right. But for most of the match, Mr. Wrestling dominated. It's the classic story that to this day works when it's done well. The The hero is just clearly outmatching the villain. He's out wrestling him. He's outsmarting him, getting near fall after near near fall. And Kaniski got desperate and attacked Mr. Wrestling's finger. Uh, so his hand starts bleeding and the ref called the match on due to the bleeding. And of course, this match happens post the, the real life shoot fight we're talking about. So it's documented that he's got a bad hand. And how many times have you heard me say on all of our wrestling podcasts, anybody who says they can't do a job and remain over doesn't know how to work should probably retire? Right. <laughs> this is a prime example of it. This is this is what we talk about when we sing the praises of Harley Race, when we sing the praises of Ric Flair, the Jack Briscoes, the, the, the Gene Kaniskis, the real world champions. These guys could go into a territory and – know how to control the match enough to where they didn't lose any of their credibility, but make it very believable that the local hero or the local guy, if it was a heel, was that close to beating the world champion, and they both come out stronger for it. And, and I'm not taking anything away from Tim Woods. I think that's also a testament to how good Gene Kaniski was and why he was the world champion, you know? Right, right. Yes, he yeah. the hero lost, but there's no doubt in those fans' minds that on any given rematch – the good guy could still win. 
Right. If, if that 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 dirty no no good low down Gene Kaniski hadn't attacked a, a man's crippled finger, well, we know he'd have beat him. Right. And does Gene look any weaker for it? No, he's leaving with the title. He's still the world champion, and is and it, it just makes Tim look stronger. So right. it can be done, ladies and gentlemen. Contrary to what a lot of the young guys in the business think nowadays, idiots. A rematch was planned right away for the larger Fulton County Stadium, but Tim Woods saw his pay. He only received a $400 payday for that NWA title match with Kaniski, mm-hmm. and this event sold 5,000 tickets overnight, practically, so he demanded a raise, understandably so, because he's the guy sure. legit drawing the money, and right. he'd, he was denied, so he left Georgia and went to the Carolinas. It was the, mm-hmm. basically that the top... Babyface in Georgia left Those because next he, door. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you and, and it's it's I understand Tim's frustration, but he has to think, and I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead or a legend who had a much more successful career than me. Do you draw that house if it isn't the world champion you're wrestling? That's all I'm saying. Good point. Yeah. I mean it's like I understand you gotta understand the way the pay structure worked for the NWA champion at the time, and they were guaranteed, depending on the territory, a certain percentage of the house. And a certain percentage went to the office in St. Louis for booking the the world champion in that territory. But usually the top, the guy, whoever the local guy was, he was very happy to do it. Not because of what we just talked about, about him being stronger in defeat, but also because he got a bigger payday for it. And I would have to know what the pay structure was of the territory at the time. And I would also need to see what was the, what was the, what's the word I'm looking for? What was what you know? What was the what was the what was the what game? Was the net, yeah, the net the net draw or or the profit margin. Right. Profit. Yeah, and I, it, it's and what what year was this again? I'm trying to remember. I believe was this was 70, 60, 68, 69. Right. Uh, so so it's it's pre the big battle of Atlanta where Gunkel dies and his wife takes over. That's like seventy two. So I never heard anything about Gunkel being a bad payoff guy. So I, I mean I don't know. I always will defend the, the boys. And rarely defend promoters when it comes to matters of pay, because believe me, promoters screw all of us, even top guys. I mean, they wouldn't have it. I get it. They're the business owner. They're the ones taking the risk financially to put the show on. But what kind of show do you have if you don't have wrestlers? Right. That's all I'm saying. One of my favorite Dusty Rhodes promos was actually from his time in TNA, where he says, it says wrestling on the marquee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Mm Mm-hmm. You can't have wrestling without wrestlers. Right. So it, it, it's it's that I don't think will ever change in wrestling. We could get a union. We could get collective bargaining. All the things that have been talked about for years. Promoters, it, it's the same way in all major pro sports. The owners always make more money than the players. It just is what it is. It, it, it's uh, the owner of a big business, a Bill Gates or a, a Jeff Bezos or people like that. They make more than even their CEOs, don't they? Right. You know. Because in the end, they own it. Exactly. I mean, so that's just business, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) It is what it is. So anyway, Woods leaves Georgia, jumps ship to the Carolinas, and that's where he teamed with Sammy Steamboat. And Mm -hmm. that last name may sound familiar because Sammy Steamboat was in kayfabe or in wrestling lore, the father of Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. But that, that, that was not true in real life. They were just... No. They, they just gave Ricky the last name to, to kind of get the rub. Because Sam actually was from Hawaii and of Polynesian descent. So he had that very exotic Pacific Islander look. And as we've said before, Ricky Steamboat is arguably the greatest babe, pure white meat baby face of all time. 
after he's trained by Vern Gagne and Vern knows his real name, this is a shoot, Richard Blood. That sounds like a heel name. <laughs> oh, yeah, fantastic heel name. <laughs> Great heel name, right. How do you change it? He realizes that Ricky looks like Sam. Ricky he has a Pacific Islander heritage, so he has that exotic Pacific Islander look. Sam's an over baby face in the territory. There you go. But Sam did have a successful run down here in the Carolinas. So after that successful tag run in the Carolinas, Woods moves to Dallas to work for Fritz. And there he lost a mask versus hair match with Johnny Valentine, another name we're going to talk about again shortly. Right. Very much so. <laughs> but he lost as Mr. Wrestling and unmasked, spent the rest of his stint in Dallas as Tim Woods, tagged with George Scott, who would go on to be one of the best bookers of all time. And around this time, this is really where he started kind of being a regular contender to the NWA title because he goes to Florida once again as Mr. Wrestling because different territory, mm -hmm. no national TV. You can get away with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, by this time, Jack Briscoe was the top draw in that territory. Both Briscoe and Woods had extensive amateur backgrounds, so it was natural oh, to pit yeah. these two guys against each other to have that kind of pure wrestling match. Both guys were essentially ba baby faces. But <laughs> that was my next question. But who do you pit as the heel in that right. one? Because they're both pure white meat baby faces. <laughs> right. I wonder if the angle that was booked in, in Dallas at that time, and I, I don't know who would have been booking Dallas for Fritz at the time, because that would have been before, probably probably before Gary Hart's. I was about to say multiple. probably yeah before him. Yeah, but that, before Gary, so I'm not sure who would have been booking at the time. I'd have to look at exactly who was in the territory at that time. But I know Don Jardine, the spoiler, had a multiple runs in that territory. Maybe he was in the territory at the time, and they just didn't want to have two masked wrestlers. One is a baby face, and one is a heel. Would make sense. I, I would I would need to talk to Al Getz, former guest, friend of the podcast, who, by the way, now has his own podcast that's based on the blog that he used to do. We had him on the show, Chart in the Territories. That is the name mm -hmm. of his podcast as well. It's part of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, the same network that has Jim Cornette's. I think they've, they're going to do their – he's going to do his monthly. He's dropped one where he talks about 1981, Mid-South, the, the blinding of J JYD by – the Freebirds, which we'll discuss some of that later on when we get to Mr. Wrestling too. But check him out, free plug. This is not he's not asking for it. I'm just because I like Al and he's a good guy and I like the podcast. I'm giving him a free plug right now. But it, it, I would need to talk to Al. Al obsessively knows that kind of stuff. He would know if Dom was in the territory at the time and maybe he could give some shine some light on that. So I might be sending him a, a message here after we're done recording, Seth, and then you could add that to the show notes after I've talked to him. Yeah, and I'll I'll link his show as well. So. But to get back to the babyface heel dynamic, both guys were essentially white meat babyfaces, but Briscoe was already the established top babyface. So what they did was they were doing the wrestler versus wrestler type thing. But what happened is Mr. Wrestling slowly would do say things here and there that would be a bit disrespectful. And then over time, because Briscoe kept winning, Mr. Wrestling got more and more frustrated and drifted farther and farther into being a heel to the point where he would start cheating to win the matches. And so this was his first major run as a heel, really, certainly as Mr. Wrestling. That's not dissimilar to how they booked later on Briscoe versus Dory Jr. You know, mm -hmm. Jr. and Briscoe had that famous, famous feud over the NWA title when Dory held the title for like, what, five years? I think Jr. had the title. <laughs> Sounds about right, yeah. To Something like what, 71, 72, when, or whatever it was, Jack finally beat him. 
they're both baby faces. At that, at that point, Jack's like the top baby face in Florida, and Junior's basically the, the top baby face in Texas, the whole state, all the territory. So they would subtly do those things depending on where the match was between those two. Where if they're in Texas, it was Jack that would do the little small stuff. If they're in Florida, it was Junior that would do the little small stuff. But it's the same concept. It's this idea of two pure wrestlers who are both obviously supposed to be baby faces. You got to I, – I mean I've joked about it before. It was the way I was trained. Doesn't matter what you do during the match in a baby-baby match as long as it ends with the handshake and the hug. It's a long-running angle, so you can't do that. I'm talking about one-offs. And unfortunately, wrestlers of today who on the social media think you're supposed to do that after every match. When I'm supposed to believe you're shaking the hand and hugging the guy who, who just came out and cut a promo on you about how he stole your girlfriend, murdered your mother, and, 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 and desecrated your father's grave, and now you're hugging him and shaking his hand after the match. And then thanking him for a great match on Twitter. This, this, ladies and gentlemen, wrestling fans, is why Crazy Train almost refuses to go to independent locker rooms to this very day. Because <laughs> there's, I, 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 I probably would be best served to walk in, slap ninety percent of the of, of the of the locker room across the face as hard as I can, look at him and go do something about it, then walk out. And they're all such wimps nowadays. They're probably, what do you do that for? He hit me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'll get off my soapbox. I, I, I divert. Whew. Tim Woods, yes, Tim Woods, Mr. Wrestling One. Awesome, awesome. First heel run. Sorry. <laughs> right. Get us back on track there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the feud ended with another mask match where Mr. Wrestling had to unmask. It's also worth noting, though, at this at this point, that Mr. Wrestling did have matches with another masked wrestler called the Grappler, who coincidentally would go on to become Mr. Wrestling Two, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Right. So after unmasking. Woods turned babyface, started battling top heels, because this is still the early 70s, so that's why I'm listing Dusty Rhodes as a heel. But Johnny Valentine, Paul Jones, he even pinned Junior, got several title matches, which often ended in a draw. And also around this time, he starts talking to Georgia again. And he actually worked out a deal where he was working two territories at the same time. He was working Florida as Tim Woods, and then he would go up to Georgia and make appearances again as, as Mr. Wrestling. Very unusual for the time, but would be, had been done before would be done later. We've talked about before how Roddy Piper did that early in his career. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Uh, he would, he would work as, as a heel in the Los Angeles territory for LaBelle's feuding with the Guerreros. And then he would go up and be a baby face for Don Owen in, in Portland feuding against Buddy Rose Jr. Or by Buddy Rose. Sorry. Buddy Rose Jr. is my my contemporary, my friend. <laughs> Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> but yeah, so it's not it's it's been done before. It's been it's been done since he did it, but it still is unusual. And also, should tell you, promoters promoters normally were going to do that back then. They're, I mean, they weren't just territorial in the sense that it was territories. It was they were territorial about their wrestlers. How do you run a show and run storylines and angles on television? not knowing if a guy's going to be there. So the fact he's able to do that in two territories should tell you how big a draw he was in both territories. And how trustworthy he was. Right. I don't think Eddie Graham or the or, 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 or Gunkel are doing this without without trusting him. And this was in 71, right? Early 70s, yeah. 71, 72, because So he... it would have been around the time that, that Gunkel passed away. And he did go to work for Gunkel, not for Ole Anderson's outlaw right, territory, right. correct? Right, okay. But Mr. Wrestling was finally set to face Dory Jr. for the NWA world title on June 1st, 1973. And we talk about this in one of our previous shows about Harley, 
uh, a week before the match, Harley actually beats Dory Jr. for the title. And mm-hmm. that title change led to Mr. Wrestling facing Harley instead on June 1st. And Mr. Wrestling declared on TV that he would unmask before the title bout. He did this because he had actually beaten Harley in previous mm-hmm. matches. So he unmasked and then crowds on his side because they, oh my gosh, we're going to have a title change. And you were talking before about having a match where both guys are still over, even because you can work it out where the champ still retains. Mm-hmm. The match ended in a 60-minute draw. And right when that 60-minute draw, when, when that bell rang, Woods had Harley trapped in a sleeper in the middle of the ring. So there you go. Mm. For the more modern fans, that's the same as the 45-minute se- time limit draw between Flair and Sting. Mm-hmm. Where Fl- Sting has got Flair in the in the Scorpion Deathlock, and Flair's is fighting not to not to submit when the bell rings. Right, always a great finish when you can pull it off and your timing is down. But that is a that is a finish that definitely requires a lot of communication between the wrestlers, the referee, and the guy who's keeping the the and I say this with air quotes time. <laughs> there's great stories I've heard from old timers where they're supposed to do like go like 60 minutes through, which it has insider term for a, a 60 minute time limit draw. And the timekeeper would be marking out essentially enjoying the match so much realize, Oh crap. I've, I've it's gone an hour and 17 minutes now. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, Oh yeah, go ahead. They'll get the, they'll get the message to the referee. Tell them, take it home. Tell them, take it home. <clears throat> and that's a thing that this we're here to talk about Tim Woods, but it brings up a very good point. This is that's the kind of stuff that when you hear old timey fans and old time wrestlers and guys from my generation and back talk about how the business has changed and they miss those days. This is an example of what we're talking about. You didn't have any fans out in the crowd with a freaking top stopwatch. Well, they went an hour and seventeen minutes. I'm 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 sure that Tim Woods and Junior didn't go exactly sixty minutes. Probably a little over, a little under. But nowadays, if they didn't end it right at 60 minutes and zero, zero seconds, how many people will be on the Internet posting that they, they, it was bullcrap nowadays? Right. Because yeah, right. yeah. there's idiots out in the crowd with freaking stopwatches. And my, I want to look at them and go, get a life, man. Get a life. And they were so good at – the guys in the ring were so good in that era at making you believe. And the promoters and bookers were so good at booking it in a way on television that you believed. This was an forget the internet, forget the fans being smart. You didn't because even back then the fans knew that it was something was up. They knew there was something fishy. They knew they knew it was a work, right? They were willing to let it go, and nowadays they won't. And it's 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 that's a credit to everybody involved, but especially to Tim Woods and Junior that they were so good that you didn't have fans sitting there with time on. Well, they didn't go exactly sixty minutes. They actually went fifty eight minutes and six. And you would have that nowadays. Am I wrong? Oh no, not not at all. I mean, just just look at the Royal Rumble. They almost never do two minute intervals in that, and people notice. Oh, and you and and, and, and invariably the day after Monday after uh, that, you've got nine million keyboard warriors complaining about the intervals. And I'm like, get your ass up, go learn how to bump, learn how to sell, get in shape, go to the gym, go in there and go as long as those guys do, and then complain. Shut up, sit down, shut up. <laughs> I'm getting fired up. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I was about to say, did, did they not give you your meds at the asylum? Or? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just when we talk, I mean, obviously that's what we talk about on Classic Wrestling Memories is this old time stuff. It just reminds me how much better the business used to be. <laughs> <laughs> we were mentioning before about Georgia. So here, here's the answer about Georgia. Tim Woods, after 
this match, he went back and started working in Georgia full time. But this by this time, Jim Barnett had bought that territory. So he's working for Jim Barnett, okay. which would have been the gun- previously the Gunkel territory, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, it was Jim Jim having the political clout to be able to do that and a way to end kind of all of that. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can't remember the whole story. Pretty sure Sam Mushnick had had a lot to do with because this would have been Jim coming back from Australia and successor running WCW at the time, the original WCW. And we've talked before, the only reason Barnett had left the country and gone to Australia to begin with was the the the, the sex scandal when he was running Kentucky earlier in the 50s and the 60s, where openly flamboyant gay man having these wild parties as the local wrestling promoter there in Lexington, where the University of Kentucky is, that involved Rock Hudson long before Rock Hudson came out of the closet, and other famous people where essentially the, the University of Kentucky football team was being paid to be the and I'm using this as as because this is this is this doesn't have the explicit tag air quotes Entertain, <laughs> yeah entertainment for the evening I'll just leave it at that started to come to light because some journalists found out and next thing Jim Barnett's on a plane to Australia and starting a promotion there so <laughs> I mean but he did I mean he did run a successful territory at the time that he was in Australia we've talked about it before it was the most successful territory in the world. They weren't. I don't think they were officially a member of the NWA, but he would get the NWA champion to fly in every once in a while. He still had a lot of connections back here in the states, so I can totally see. Because I don't know, I would like to do a show on that because I would enjoy doing the research and talking to some old timers about it. But I'm pretty sure Sam Mushnick had some 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 involvement in because of what happened between Oli and then Gunkle passing and his wife taking over, his widow, I should say, taking over. And this ugly feud going on in the Atlanta territory. And quite frankly, we've said it before. We will at some point do a whole show on the wrestling war in Atlanta in 71, 72. Because it's just a fascinating time in wrestling. But the, the fact that Jim Barnett came back, I think enough time had passed. that, And it was far enough away, Georgia to Kentucky. People had forgotten. So, I mean, I, I'm sure you can you can understand why I'm, why I'm feeling that way. That, that Mushnick probably oh, yeah. was involved in Barnett. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, which you, Barnett, which is probably another personality we need to do a whole show on. Uh, oh, my boy. <laughs> and my boy. Oh, my. Oh, my. Seth, you're oh, just a beautiful man. But I think that you got to remember, as I've pointed out before with Barnett, he was on President Carter's National Board of the Arts. I mean, this that's the circles he ran in. This is a powerful man, which is amazing when you think about how flamboyant and openly gay he was in the time period he was. Kind of amazing. So upon returning to Georgia, this is where the feud happened because Mr. Wrestling 2, who had now been established, or nicknamed 2 by the crowd, essentially, right? 2 turns heel on Mr. Wrestling, citing it was a disgrace that he lost the match or lost the mask. And they feuded all over the state. And that had to be thought of as a gamble at the time because I believe Vince Sr. actually called up Barnett and said, "You can't do mask for two guys in masks at in in the same match. You just it would it, it wouldn't work. But, it's not going to sell, right? But it did, and he drew a sellout crowd. They did a mask versus hair match that two won, and two won. Okay, that that Johnny Walker won. Mister Wrestling two won, and, <laughs> and and the Tim Woods Mister Wrestling had to have his head shaved. And they right. did make amends and team again as one and two. But by this time." This is really Tim Woods getting in the twilight of his career, and two was the one that was considered the the major part of the duo right. by that time. Well, yeah, it's probably a good time to, to give a backstory on two at this point, since we're starting to cross over their their careers. 
first off, let me say, all due respect to Vince McMahon Sr., that is a great example, my opinion, I've, I've brought it up before, about a promoter knowing his towns and how every territory was uniquely different. It probably wouldn't have worked up north and in, in Vince's towns, but Barnett knew his towns in Georgia, and he knew how over those two guys were, so he knew it would work, and it did. Right. But Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker, had actually started his career in the mid-50s with Paul Bosch in Houston with Leo Garibaldi as the booker at the time. And I think it was Garibaldi there, or maybe it was Bosch that gave him the name Rubberman because he was extremely flexible, and that was kind of his gimmick. And he was a mid-card guy. And yeah, he it was Bosch, by the way. Was it Bosch? It was yeah, Bosch, he, yeah. you know, he, 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 he wrestled for about, what, 10 years, 10, 11 years, and he retired. And he was actually, I believe, living in Tennessee running a gas station or a used car dealership when I think it might, it might have been Barnett. It might have been Paul Jones, not Paul Jones, the wrestler, Paul Jones, the promoter in Georgia, the partner of Barnett in the territory who convinced him to come out of retirement to tag with, with Tim Woods as wrestling one. And they put the mask on him, just started calling him Mr. Wrestling two. Uh, and they would run angles where Tim Woods would be injured kayfabe and 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 johnny walker's wrestling two would fill in and i cannot one used the sleeper as his finisher two used the running knee lift which was just kind of a setup move now but that was his big finisher and they were successful as a tag team and they were successful separately and and there were times i you gotta remember we've talked about this before in the carolinas this is true in georgia well we talked about florida they did there too where these with the when these territories got really hot and successful they were able to run two towns uh, on the same night. And who is a promoter and a booker doesn't want to have two guys that wrestle similarly, look the same, wear the same mask. You can put one in the main event on one town and one in the main event in the other. That's, wow, that's that's fortuitous for a booker. It may sound a little devious to say this, but I can understand from a promoting standpoint why they would do that because they're, they're not promoting – him as Tim Woods or Johnny Walker. They're promoting each as Mr. Wrestling. So you're getting a Mr. Wrestling. It's just not necessarily the same guy underneath. Yeah, you, know? you get Mr. Wrestling 1 or Mr. Wrestling 2, depending on you know which town you're in and which one they send whoever to. And it's directly out of this feud where he feuds with one and, and beats, beats one and Tim Woods shaves his head. Mr. Wrestling 2 becomes the biggest babyface in the Georgia Territory and would stay there unusurped until the early 80s and the rise of Tommy Rich. And you've heard us talk at length about how over Tommy Rich was. So he had probably, what, a seven, eight-year run as the top guy in Georgia. And the only guy that even came close and I think maybe got to his level but never surpassed him would have been Bullet Bob Armstrong. Right. And, and, and Bob actually legitimately hurt his face, but broke his nose or something, I believe, because he was a volunteer firefighter on top of being a, a wrestler. And I think he, I think he was fighting a fire when he had the facials. I could be wrong. It could have been a motorcycle accident. But they worked an injury angle into it, and then Bob started to wear a mask as bullet, the bullet Bob Armstrong. And I, I've often thought the reason that worked is because it's the territory where it was already established that a mask guy could be a top baby fan. I don't know if that works in another territory. And and obviously Bob wrestled a lot before without the mask, and he wrestled without it. After the injury, they did the the, the whole storyline was that Bob had some kind of protective gear underneath the mask to protect his nose that he had to wear during matches. And every and he didn't build himself as Mr. Wrestling 3 or something. They built himself as Bullet Bob Armstrong. He just wore a mask. Everybody knew who it was. But I, I don't know if you can pull that angle off if it's not for the success of Tim Woods and Johnny Walker already under mask at this point in that territory. Just my thoughts. Right, right. 
what you were mentioning about too becoming the the top babyface. When you look at some of the names he was feuding with around this time, Harley Race, Gene and Ole Anderson, Bill Watts, all guys legit top draws for their re- mm-hmm. go. Yeah, and it, I guess it, would, it wasn't long after that feud when, when John when when wrestling won. Tim Woods worked his way back here to the Carolinas, correct? Right, right. So we've now established they've had the feud, they've split. Tim's lost the the the, the hair versus mass match. Johnny's remaining in Georgia's top babyface. Tim goes goes back comes back here to the Carolinas and immediately becomes one of the top babyfaces here, back with a mask on as Mister Wrestling. And for current fans, probably the most famous story about Tim Woods, Mr. Wrestling One that they know of is the infamous plane crash that involved Ric Flair. Tim Woods was on that plane as well, along with David Crockett, Bob Bruggers, Johnny Valentine. Do you notice what what is different between Johnny Valentine, Ric Flair, Bob Bruggers, and Tim Woods? Absolutely. <laughs> he, he's the only baby face in this group of wrestlers on this plane. Right. And, and of course, we know that it it Bob Bruckers could have wrestled again, but he retired. He was never fully into the business anyways. It it, it severely injured David Crockett. It, eventually, the pilot dies. Johnny Walker never wrestles. It broke, Johnny Valentine. Broke, Johnny Valentine, I mean. And Ric Flair, of course, breaks his back, and he's out of, what, a year and a half before he comes back? And Tim Woods, he had to – I mean, he. Ric Flair said in his autobiography to be the man, the events that followed that plane wreck of what Tim Woods did, Tim Woods saved wrestling. Yep, that's exactly what I had in in the notes here as Ric Flair calling him, quote, the man who saved wrestling in the, in the Carolinas. Because he still, and he probably shouldn't have been wrestling, and was obviously in pain, was going to house shows and working through the injuries of being in a plane wreck and showing up on TV. He went to the hospital to see Johnny and Rick and them, but he went without his mask and he gave his real name, not Tim Woods, George Wooden. Right. You know? He, he so told, the, the, I believe he told the hospital and the authorities that he was a promoter, not right. a wrestler. He just said he worked, yeah, he worked for the, he, I think he says, I work for Jim Crockett Promotions. So none of this is a lie. He's, this is, he's not, he's not kayfabe, he's telling the truth. He gave him his real name and he was an employee of Jim Crockett Promotions, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't lying. He just he had to say, save the business because kayfabe was so strong and people, it would have been in that era in 74, 75 would have been a thousand times worse than when, when Cheeky Baby and, and, and Duggan got busted together with drugs. It would have been worse. Because you have to understand, Woods was feuding with Flair at the time. And they're on the same plane together? Come on. Right. And, and, and Woods, I mean, it's, it's Flair talks about Woods is also the same guy that when Flair showed back up at, at, the, at the offices there in Charlotte of the Crockett's with the back brace on, Woods like, take that damn thing off. That's going to make your, all your muscles atrophy. Because back in those days, all the, all, all, the, all the guys in the locker room were, doc, were amateur doctors. They knew better than doctors. And Flair has talked about how he was terrified of taking backdrops because of the back injury when he came back. Yeah. And the way George Scott, who you mentioned earlier, who was the booker in the Carolinas at the time, the way he broke Flair of that was he just booked him against Tim Woods in 30-minute draws every night for like, a month and a half because he knew Tim was going to make him take a backdrop. <laughs> and he's like, you're going to get in the ring with this guy and work him every night and take a backdrop. So- and, and it's also why I don't want to get too distracted on Flair, of course, but it's also why a lot of times when Flair would take that famous uh, off the top rope, thing, he, he kind of lands more on his hip than he does his back. Right. He's protecting himself. It's just, it's just the way he's learned how to take a bump to protect his back from an injured back. 
And but that was, I mean, Tim Woods is essentially the guy. You can give a lot of credit to, to you can give a lot of credit, and, and Flair does openly gives a lot of credit to George Scott for having the idea of, of making him the Nature Boy, and he gives a lot of credit to guys like Blackjack and Wahoo and 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 Steamboat for making him what he is. But he'll also, if you talk to him, Tim Woods is the guy that he was in the ring with right after the injury, and there there probably would be no Ric Flair without Tim Woods. He's the guy that helped Ric Flair get his confidence back, get knocked the ring rust off. So if, for all the accomplishments Tim Woods has in the wrestling business, I think that alone is worthy of Hall of Fame. You Absolutely. essentially created what is generally regarded as the greatest wrestler of all time and helped him overcome what would have ended 99% of the guy's career. So I can't sing enough praises for Tim Woods for that one act alone on top of everything else. He did. And I remember as a kid when I first started paying attention to wrestling, Tim Woods was – Still wrestling as Mr. Wrestling one, but he was obviously well past his prime at this point. And it was just occasionally they would have him on TV doing matches. But he was still revered and feared by the fans around here. Well, it didn't have the level of the Johnny Valentine or the Wahoo McDaniel, but it was still there. Right. It was like, he was a big strapping dude who you didn't want to mess with. Right. I think the last major program he had in that time going into the early 80s, I think he had a U.S. title feud with Jimmy Snuka. Well, that's right. I, I vaguely remember that as a fan. And you're talking the old U.S. belt where the where the faceplate was actually the shape of the the, the 48 contiguous states, which I love that mm-hmm. belt, by the way. Right. Right. But yeah, I mean, so Tim Woods, Blair said it. He's the man that saved wrestling here in the Carolinas. Just by, I I can't even fathom. I've been in car wrecks before, where I've walked away and been uninjured. But anybody who's been in a car wreck, they know how sore you are for for weeks. Because of the whiplash and impact effect. Well, I'm sure you got to multiply that times 10 when you're in a plane wreck, wouldn't you think? Right. And you're going out and having 30-minute matches two days later? Come on. Wow. But we really can't talk the career of really Flair or Mr. Wrestling without mentioning the plane crash. I mean, I, it, just, it, just, it's it is just, what it is. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, for modern fans, that's going to be the thing they know the most about. Because it was the end of his career. And it was so very important. But like we said, this is going on in the Carolinas. Well, concurrently... Now you got what I was talking about earlier, wrestling to legitimately becoming the most popular over babyface, with the exception of maybe Bob Bullet Bob Armstrong at the same at the same time in the Georgia territory, the Georgia the territory right next door. And you had listed listed some of his opponents at that time. Who were they again? Watts, Harley, Harley Race, the original Andersons, Gene and Gene Actually, no. Lars was it Gene and Gene and Oli. Yeah, Gene and Oli. Yeah, the original was Lars and Oli. Yeah. yeah. I mean Lars and Gene. Yeah, Lars and Gene were the original. But anyway, yeah. But this is also about the time the assassin came in. We mentioned Jody Hamilton before. Spoiler. Guys like this. Because when you're a, a baby face, when you're a top baby face, you're the king of your territory. And then you just yep. kind of bring in the the villain of the season, so to speak, that they feud with. And that's really what they were doing with I think I think Sheik, uh, I think Abdullah around right. this time, Nikolai Volkov. I think you would have had a run, I probably had a run against Ernie Ladd at some point. I think Ernie came in. It, it's it's around this time, and when a few weeks ago when we lost Johnny, we started getting that this that famous picture of former President Jimmy Carter having wrestling two in a headlock. You remember Jimmy Carter's from Georgia, and he 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 was the governor of the state before he was president. He was a from Plains, Georgia, grew up here. Mr. Wrestling 2, by President Carter's admission, is his favorite wrestler of all time and his mother's favorite wrestler of all time. And because of his 
clout and successful, being successful businessman, money and power, he was able to meet several times with Mr. Wrestling too. Those that weren't alive, they don't understand. President Carter was the first president we'd had from the South since. I mean, I guess LBJ being from Texas. But other than LBJ, he was the first Southern president we'd had, what, since before the Civil War? Possibly, yeah. And he really played up his Southernness in his campaign. He had Southern rock bands and country bands of the time, like Marshall Tucker and the Almonds and Charlie Daniels and guys like that, playing his rallies. And he would take pictures in public with Mr. Wrestling, too. That's kind of weird to think of a, of a president doing something like that nowadays, but it worked for Jimmy Carter back in 76. And that's how important wrestling was to the culture down here at that time. And, well, Southern rock and country music, too, for that matter. But I've heard these great stories of how once he won the presidency, the election, and was in the White House, Johnny would go to visit him. And there was a big kerfuffle because Secret Service didn't want a, a masked man to, to get to the White House to talk to the president. And apparently there were meetings between Rosalind, you know, the first lady, and Johnny, where Johnny refused to give up his mask, where he still wore his mask. But it was apparently quite tense between Johnny and some of the Secret Service about, you're going to take that mask off. And he's like, nope, no, I'm not. <laughs> he real The really fun thing about that is I have no problem believing that President Carter understood that. Understood why a mask would, you know. Right, right. And I think of all the pictures we've seen of Johnny, that's the one that I saw the most when he passed away. Is that? Did you see that picture a lot? Oh, yeah. Where Carter Mm -hmm. has him in a headlock. And and, and no, 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 not taking anything away from President Carter. He's the only president we ever had to graduate from Annapolis, a Naval Academy grad. He's in that headlock, but he got him in a headlock because Johnny let him put him in a headlock. He's not going to put Johnny Walker in a headlock unless Johnny Walker wanted to put him in a headlock. (laughs) I I don't think Johnny was too much to attack the sitting president, but you get my point. Right. I mean, right. And another thing about Johnny, I I meant to uh, mention this before, but when he retired, he retired at the age of 30, uh, at least the first time. And, but he was one of those guys that just looked older than he was. So he was 30, but looked like he was probably in his mid 40s. So by the time he's 40, he's looking a lot older than 40. And that's what one of the reasons they gave him the, the, the two gimmick is because who cares what you look like when you're wearing a mask? Right, right. A lot of fans didn't catch this, but if you were a fan of the, of the halcyon days of ECW, the late 90s, the, the real ECW, not the, that joke that when they tried to revive it in the WWE, you remember when, when Raven would do a knee lift a lot in his matches, he would hold up two fingers. That's why it was his little wink, wink, nod, nod homage to Mr. Wrestling too. And I don't know if all the, I mean, which is amazing. Cause those were like the smartest fans in the business at the time. Right. And I don't know if all the fans there caught. That's what, that's what Scott was doing. Scott's openly admitted that it was my tribute to rest. Mr. Wrestling too, was I'd hold the two fingers up and then go for the knee lift. I mean, you got to remember, Scott grew up in the in the Florida Territory. Johnny had some runs in Florida, and Florida's right next to Georgia, so I'm pretty sure he got some Georgia TV at some point in his life. Absolutely. Now, around late 70s or early 80s, like I said, uh, Tim Woods is in the twilight of his career, but they were still doing tag matches. So this is around the time where, in Georgia, they're facing the Assassins, they're facing the Freebirds, and who was also winning top singles matches on his own. Right. But you're also talking around the time frame that Tommy Rich is ascending to the top of the card as the top babyface. It, it's, it's wrestling. The young guys come in, they start to take over. Wrestling's always been that way. But he was still heavily ensconced in the main event. Both Johnny and Tim were, were at this point. 
you've got that wonderful, and I don't know if you're going to link it or not, that wonderful promo by Ernie Ladd that's just simply called Ernie Ladd is Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from George Championship Wrestling in the early 80s with Gordon Soley interviewing Ernie Ladd. And if you don't know the territory and who all was in at the time, you wouldn't fully understand who he's who who Ernie Ladd's cutting his promo on. He's mostly cutting it on Wahoo McDaniel, talking about he's going to pluck the, the feathers of that Indian. But he also mentions Tommy Rich. He also mentions Tony Atlas, and he mentions a guy I'm going to rip that mask off and and show you are a criminal. He's talking about wrestling, Mister Wrestling uh, One, I believe, but it might be two. That's please link that in show notes. Oh yeah, that's just I yeah. would not you could not cut that promo today. Oh, absolutely. Because it makes it makes some very inflammatory and racially charged comments about Tony Atlas and Wahoo McDaniel, but they're still awesome. I mean, he was a heel. You were supposed to not like Ernie Ladd. Right, right. But this well, is about the feathers. Gonna have my own Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's right. Ernie, I'm sorry. That's the most appropriate named YouTube video I've ever seen. Ernie Ladd <laughs> is awesome. I digress, <laughs> but yes. But it's good that you mentioned Ernie because this is about the time in the early 80s where two starts working in Mid-South. Mm-hmm. And this was and this was uh, when Bill Watts was running and Ernie, Ernie would have been his booker that yeah, time, right? Right, right. While Bill Watts would have been the promoter and then Ernie was was the booker, but the top guy in the territory by this time was Junkyard Dog. And mm-hmm. so they they had to turn heel and this is one of the most famous botched moments in in wrestling history might be number one on matthew's botchamania <laughs> right right and ernie would tell bill watts and, and of course i'm i'll use any excuse to try a uh, ernie ladd impression but i can just imagine him saying cowboy yeah can't beat jyd in new orleans okay <laughs> Yeah, remember this is this is post Ernie getting fired and then rehired on one day by by Bill Watts for making JYD. I think it was Wrestle One for like a like like thirty minutes. Right. Yeah, boy, it's not gonna make it, Bill Watts. You can't do it. I put him in there for thirty minutes with Tim Woods. <laughs> I didn't. You're fired. I didn't hire you to tell you what he can't do. I know what he can't do. I hired you. To, I hired him to see what he can do. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> And I can hear Bill Watts yell. I can hear Bill Watts yell back at him too. <laughs> he can't do a Broadway, so don't have him do a Broadway. You know? <laughs> pretty simple. I didn't hire him to do. See, I know what he can't do. So I hired him down there to see what he can do. <laughs> but Mr. Wrestling Two had turned heel on Junkyard Dog, and they had this match. And Mr. Wrestling Two started gimmicking his knee lift. We talked about before about how he had the knee lift as his finisher. Well, he would load his knee pad and had right. the gimmick knee pad. So they did a thing where he was going to hit JYD with the knee lift, but he misses by a mile. And I don't know if it was because JYD wasn't quite placed properly or what, but not only do they have the heel beat the top baby face that the crowd loves, it's, it's, it's such a botched finish where clearly there was no connection, but JYD sold it like he was dead anyway. Yeah, I mean, and for a guy who was not known to take bumps, he took a picture perfect bump off this thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you thought he got hit by a cannon shot, and he clearly missed by a mile. <laughs> right, right, and so that legitimately ticked off the crowd. It, as the term would say, it was the wrong kind of heat. It was not the red heat where the fans want to see the heel get get beaten up. It was it, it was a legit this sucks heat. So, right. And you, know. you have to remember 
the, you're talking a Louisiana crowd in the 80s, one of the most notorious crowds in all of wrestling for riots. <laughs> right. It didn't take a lot to get them hot to begin with. So I can imagine it was – I'll put it this way. I was a career babyface. I would not have wanted to have been in that locker room that night because even as a babyface, I would have been afraid for my life trying to get in my car that night. That's how that's how bad this crowd was. It's been like I would have I might have I might have been one of those nights I just stayed in the locker room until everybody had cleared out of the building and the parking lot before I decided to go to my car and drive away. But that's just that's the kind of heat that you could get down there in in, in Louisiana at the time. Right. There's also right around this part where he had a team and feud with Magnum TA, right? Right. And this is this yeah this time period. You have to understand that we've talked before. Houston was a unique territory in the sense that it was a one-town territory that Paul Bosch ran, and Paul Bosch was like the most over guy in the territory. And he was the promoter. He was very very ensconced in the local community. And, and and just that well-beloved and respected by the citizens of the city of Houston. He had a deal with Bill Watts where they shared talent and ran shows together. And they did – Bill would do some of his television at the I- Irish Boys Club in Houston. Or sorry, at the, at the Sam Houston Coliseum, I think. It was. I can't remember what it was, but it was in Houston. Mm-hmm. And they would use some of the Houston guys and some of the, uh, of, of the Mid-South guys. And so this feud actually happens concurrently in both territories. And the idea, I think the Booker at the time still might have been Ernie. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. You'd have to listen to one of Cornette's podcasts because he talks about this all the time because it was the first big-time feud that they had, the Midnights and Cornette had, where they you would just come out of JYD losing to two, two, and they did one of these angles we talked about earlier where JYD had lost – uh, loser leave town and came back as Stagger Lee and Stagger Lee, which was JYD under a mask and Bill Watts uh, as the baby faces against this up and coming new brash heel tag team of Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton and Midnight Express. And the whole feud got started with Bill Watts paintbrushing Jim Cornette on TV, just slapping the taste out of his mouth, which is just one of the greatest angles of all time. And they dominated the Midnights and to get some of the Midnights heat back, they wanted to feud them with an established star, but this time they had turned to back babyface. And like is common back then, we've talked about this many times. A, if you see a young guy who was a booker and a promoter has potential, you tag him with a veteran. The veteran can teach him the ropes. He can teach them. He can teach. He can teach him how to live on the road. He gives him the rub and the fans' eyes. Magnum was that guy. Two was the established veteran. And you've got the perfect foils in Jim Cordette, the Midnight Express for them because they're this brash young heel tag team. And the the bulk of the feud involved a lot of matches that dealt with the loser gets to gets to take or has to take lashes from the other team with belts. Another angle. They don't do that a lot anymore, though. We do have strap matches and stuff like that occasionally. And the Midnights being the heel team would often win through skullduggery and nefarious means with the idea being Magnum was going to take five lashes and wrestling two would take five lashes. But the way they told the story was Magnum as the young guy would step up and always say, no, 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 I'm not going to allow you to, to hurt the veteran. So he would take all 10 lashes. And the original plan, my understanding, like I said, you have to listen to Cornette's podcast when he talks about this, was to turn Magnum heel. And have him feud with two. And 
That's really that kind of the opposite of what normally happens. I think it's usually it's the <laughs> the uh, veteran that turns on the baby face once they're done teaming, well, right? This is this is this I think this feud is the reason why that we started to see that. And I think Cornette suggested no, that doesn't make any sense. You need to turn Johnny heel, not 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 Terry. He saw the potential that what Magnum was going to be, and 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 Magnum. There's no disrespect to Johnny Walker. Magnum was just that over from the get go. I mean, look at the guy. He was super good looking. He was smooth. He had a great body. And Johnny, like we point out, he's what in his fifties by this point. He's definitely a shadow of what he used to be in the ring. He's he's, and it allowed Johnny when he finally did did turn on Magnum to cut promos that were probably true to true to true to life. A bit of a congratulatory old man, kind of like me when I just went off on the younger guys about twenty minutes ago. Right. <laughs> you know, and Johnny's probably at the same point because he's about what age I'm at now when all this is happening. And so it was just a great. I can't remember exactly how they led to the turn, but I, eventually Johnny turned on Magnum, and then that was a hot feud. And I've, Cornette has told a story of how over Paul Bosch was that after I think it was in Houston. Obviously, it wasn't Houston. It was Tom Paul Bosch, but I can't remember what building it was in. Where Dennis and Bobby were getting a little heavy-handed with the with the belts, and they were beating the they were really lashing Magnum pretty hard. And Johnny's doing a good job standing in the corner, just having to sell the fact that he's taking everything he's got to stop to hold himself back from wanting to attack. But this is he's a babyface. You have to live up to the the, the end of the contract. And then you signed the contract that said you would take ten lashes if you lost. So the crowd legitimately started moving towards the whole crowd in mass starts moving towards the ring, wanting to stop this beating that Magnum's taking. Paul Bosch sees this. He walks out. He doesn't send out guys to stop the crowd. He walks out himself and just holds one hand up in the air in the crowd. Like you said, look like something like that scene in the Ten Commandments where Charlton Heston parts the Red Sea. The crowd literally just moved back. That's how over Paul Bosch was. He just held his hand up in the crowd like, oh, we better back up. So that's amazing when you think about it. But uh, that's how he did this, that, that, that feud leading up to it and then the turn on Magnum got. Where, I mean, Houston, which was not known for the riots in Louisiana, was, was ready to riot. So that's pretty over. But that is kind of becoming the twilight of Johnny Walker's career as well. I mean, he made some appearances here and there afterwards. But, I mean, his, yeah, I think, his I think, full-time I think he days. finished up as like a job guy for Vince Jr., didn't he? Yeah, I think right about the time Vince bought the Georgia Championship <laughs> Wrestling time slot that that what, what, what was it, the the Black Saturday infamous Black Saturday, right. you know, right? That would have been eighty four, eighty five, eighty five. I think eighty four. Yeah, 80, somewhere around yeah. There, right right before WrestleMania, year or two before. Right, right. So yeah, we we went over that. We talked our, our Mania One show. That the build up to that was he took the money when Crockett bought the time slot to run WrestleMania One. But I think and Houston was kind of dying as a territory at that point. Bill hadn't quite made the chitch to UWF yet, so it all makes sense. And plus, at that point, Johnny's got to be early fifties. Tim's been tired, been retired at that point for what three, or four years, probably. Sounds about right. Yeah, it's it's always sad when we lose someone like Johnny. But as we've gone through both Johnny and Tim's histories, I think for me personally, growing up where I did, when I did, the fact that Tim Woods pretty much. Sit sends Ric Flair on the trajectory to become the Nature Boy, and Johnny Walker pretty much establishes Magnum TA as a main event babyface. As a fan who grew up in the Carolinas in the eighties, I can't be more thankful to the two of them, can I? Right, right. I mean, I, I obviously I don't know firsthand from watching at that point, but I've seen enough of Magnum's work and enough of 
2's work. And I think this is around the time also, after the, the run he had for Vince, he basically effectively retired. But remember, this is the 80s, so internet's not the internet's not mainstream and all this stuff. So he went back. Right. He just went home. He went back to being Johnny Walker and never told people that he was Mr. Wrestling too. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And you must, you also have to remember too, that it wasn't long after the feud you had with Magnum that Magnum catches Dusty's eye and Dusty brings Magnum into the Carolinas. And well, what we know of Magnum, most modern day fans is because of that run he had here in the Carolinas before the car wreck. So it that 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 feud's so successful, and we've talked about before. Dusty is the Booker in the Carolinas at the time. He's kind of following the same model Vince is. He's going around and cherry picking the territories for the top guys to create his own roster of stars to go head to head with Vince. Magnum's one of those guys. Does does Magnum catch Dusty's eye if he doesn't have this great feud with two? Probably not. We also would be remiss. You cannot talk Johnny Walker, Mister Wrestling Two, without mentioning his wife Olivia. I That's mean, what I was about to say. The same thing. I was going to say we could probably wind up with that. She, for those who don't know, and it's fairly well documented now, she was a seamstress who made a lot of extra money for them as a couple by making all those robes that we think of from that era that all the top guys, especially Ric Flair, wore. And we're talking, this is ex- extremely in, uh, labor-intensive work because those, I mean, those, you don't, you don't sew those, those patterns on by, with a machine. Those are done by hand slow time consuming very tedious work and so i believe the 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 blue robe that flair wears against harley in the first starcade you know with the long wings mm-hmm. on the on the on believe i believe olivia made that one yeah and i cuz i think flair has said he still has it he like it was it was right. the first robe that she made for him he still has right and he looks back and kind of laments he was really underpaying her for what she was doing but when you would hear flair talk about he had a, a $2,000, $3,000, dollar robe. That was a shoot because that's how much he was paying Olivia to make them. And she got so well-known for her work, she wasn't just making robes for the wrestlers. She was adorning suits for the country and western stars of the era too. I mean, Porter Wagner's probably one of the most famous country stars to wear what are known as nudie suits or Manuel suits, which were normally made by uh, two tailors in the Beverly Hills, one named Manuel and one named Nudie. The, thus the name nudie or suit or a manual suit well she's closer in the carolinas and georgia to, to nashville than guys in beverly hills are aren't they right so she's making making suits for these guys too so if you're watching pro wrestling or you're watching the grand old opry and hee-haw in the 70s and you see this flashy suit or flashy robe with sequins nine times out of ten you can bet it's olivia walker that's made it and i think it's once again tim wood's and through his actions, put Flair on the trajectory he was on to become the Nature Boy. Well, a major part of that look was the robes. Well, Johnny Walker's wife was was, <laughs> was instrumental in that. So, is there really a Ric Flair without Mister Wrestling One and Mister Wrestling Two? It is kind of funny when you put it that way because Tim Woods is the one that kind of helped make him in the ring, and then Mister Wrestling Two's wife is the guy that helped make his look. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, she she like kind of completed the package of what the Nature Boy was. So, I mean. Probably not as well. And, and, and you brought it up at the beginning of the podcast. Two guys who wore masks, who for the first time ever, oh my gosh, top baby face. Baby faces. Very masks. Very groundbreaking. Much more than I think people give you the one of them credit for. I think we can wind up with that. I don't think we're overstating it that both of these guys are Hall of Fame careers, like even, even individually. Without question. Yeah, in, in, in their own question. right. And I think it's like, you, it's like you like to say 
about Jerry Lawler and, and Memphis wrestling. And I can't remember whose quote is it you steal from this. Oh, but I'm going to pair a Carl Stearns. Well, I think it's the same with, with wrestling one and two. When you tell the story of the history of professional wrestling, especially in the United States, Mr. Wrestling one and Mr. Wrestling two are not going to be the first two names that pop in your head, but you cannot tell the whole story of professional wrestling without mentioning and talking about these two guys. I think we can right. agree on that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, this has been volume 33 of Classic Wrestling Memories, talking the careers of Mr. Wrestling 1 and 2. If you're hearing us for the first time, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the, the website, but if you have Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, basically anywhere you can get your podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Just search for Classic Wrestling Memories. And let us know what we're doing well. Give us a subscribe. Give us a review. I'm always looking for ways to improve. The only thing I ask when people give us a review is just be honest. Even if you want to tell us something you don't like about us, that's fine too. And Train, if people want to get a hold of you to talk about wrestling or uh, any of our podcasts, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. Would love to to hear your comments, your complaints. Just uh, remember... If you like what you hear, hit the like button, subscribe. That way it's easy. It just downloads every time because Classic Wrestling Memories and a few of the other podcasts we do, unlike Geekville Radio proper, we just kind of do them sporadically. We tried it. We shoot for what? About four to every four to six weeks we like to do Classic Wrestling right, Memories. Right, right. So, we were originally thinking of, of monthly, but really it's just kind of whenever we have time. <laughs> so the greatest way to make sure you don't miss it is to subscribe. Then it'll just download whenever we always cherish and look forward to your comments, whether they're good or bad. And like Seth always likes to say, the only thing that really matters is that you're honest. That is going to wind up this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. Thank you folks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. What I tell you, cowboy, you can't have that vomit beat JYD in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs>